Previously on Through the Cracks. Do you know who Mbuyisa Makubu is? He's the man that carried Hector Peterson to the hospital. The gentleman carrying Hector Peterson, he became one of the most wanted boy here in Soweto. The machine in the on top of the tree. He addressed the student and he said, This is a peaceful march. Don't destroy anything. I mean, we never measured the magnitude of the attack on us. So the hell was loose. Police were just shooting at random. It was the saddest picking I've ever done. I knew that it could be forever, or maybe like it happened eventually some people came back. This is Through the Cracks, the untold story of Mbuyisa Makubu. I'm Mandy Wiener. This is episode two. In the first episode, we revisited the Soweto uprising of June 1976 and that poignant, powerful image of a lanky young man in dungarees carrying a wounded Hector Peterson. Mbuyisa Makubu played such a central role in that photograph, yet today very few people even know his name. I've spent the last year looking for him. After the iconic image made its way around the world, Mbuyisa, just 18 years old at the time, suddenly found himself the most wanted man in Soweto. He was hunted. Finally, he decided he had had enough and he escaped into exile in Botswana. He would never be seen by his family again. So let's pick up where we left off. He was harassed uh, terribly uh, after, June 6th, after, after pub, the image was published. That's Faisal Mamdu. In 1998, he made a documentary called What Happened to Mbuyisa? It achieved critical acclaim. He was invited to screen it at international documentary film festivals. Today, Faisal is a middle-aged film producer. He lives in Randburg, and his son plays the drums. But in the 80s, he was political. He was detained during the first state of emergency, and he turned 18 in John Forster Square. He spent pretty much the last 20 years trying to find the man in the image. And the image was very powerful because... Uh you know, the events of June 16th were represented by an image like that, uh, really bolstered the, and the sanctions campaign uh, for the isolation of apartheid in South Africa. And, um, um, you know, the security uh, police were, were very interested in Mbuisa. And as Mbuisa's mother says in the documentary as well, uh, they even accused uh, him of having posed for the image. Um, so it's quite special in that sense as, as, a, as, as an image and it had a lot of uh, you know, import uh, for me it's like an image like uh, you know the, 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 uh, the, the child fleeing in, in Saigon fleeing, fleeing the, was the napalm uh, bombs it, it, you know, it, it has that kind of uh, power Chased by the police Mbuisa left Soweto in August 1976 for Botswana. He did write the occasional letter to his mother and would send messages home to his family. We heard from him from people that he saw in Botswana that he went to Botswana for one or the other reason. Like Abigail Gupega, which is my mum's uh, back opposite, yeah, he used to go and perform in Botswana. Some of my schoolmates would go and see their cousins and then if they saw him, they'd say, we saw your brother, he said one, two, three. Mbuyisa's older sister, Tiki, 
remembers that time. She thinks those first letters were meant to reassure the family. That he hopes that we are fine, he's okay, you know. He never gave us the idea that maybe things are not okay. I think for our own sake. I wanted to know what was happening here and then that he's okay. During those early months, Mbuyisa met a girl, Kenilwe. She fell pregnant and together they had a son, Tato, who today is the splitting image of Mbuyisa. Kenilwe now lives in Texas, Tato stays in Botswana. We did speak to both of them and asked them if we could interview them for the story. But after 40 years, they were both reluctant to revisit the past. Despite this young love and the prospect of having a son, Mbuyisa wasn't happy. He had been shaken by the events of June 16 and was left deeply unsettled. Then we found out Mbuyisa is around at that time. It was 1977, early 1977, January, it was February, something like that. That's when we met Mbuyisa. At that time, we could see the poor guy. He's so traumatized, depressed, if he thinks of, as young as he is, holding a dead person, it's not our culture as such. He was so depressed and disturbed. Miki Tsakai was in exile in Botswana in late 76 into early 77, and he met Mbuyisa there. Today, he works in the military, and we visited him at his home in Rustenburg, which has been recently renovated. He is very prepared. He has a timeline detailing the events of those years. And it's clear that he's taking this very seriously. Mickey immediately recognized that his comrade was in distress. We tried to talk to him and then we went to there was a, uh, the big sisters we, that, that we knew. And the, we couldn't know at that time were the leaders of the ANC. It was Bridget Mawanda and Tato Bering. We talked with them, can't they organize or could be cancelled or something like that. It was so tough for him, he couldn't understand what is cancelling. He, he couldn't understand himself too. Mbuisa was so unhappy that he wanted to leave the country. He, he could relate to, I mean, relate to us that, no, he wants to be out of this country. He, he is afraid of the police. Because he couldn't even walk alone during, during the day, I don't know, at night. They were staying in a place in Brodest called Farm. There they were mixed with the uh, ZANU-PF and, and ZAPU. They were staying together and some South Africans, they were staying there too. Now we used to, to, to visit each other and check on, on each other, are they safe or something like that. Then in 1977, the International University Exchange Fund started offering scholarships to refugees to study in Nigeria. Miki, student leader Tsietsi Mashinini and Muyisa were amongst those that were selected. And another thing when I was in Botswana, because now people who went to... Wherever they were in Muchudi, they never saw him again. And I understand the post agents were after him, they had to go and hide him in a farm in Lobati. Because I remember when they left for, for, for Nigeria, I understand they sent a special car to go and fetch him from Lobati to the airport when they flew to Nigeria. Well, the International University Exchange Fund had organized scholarships. Um, I, I imagine together with, with uh, 
you know, uh, the exile, members of the exile community, uh, the ANC probably in this case, uh, for all these June 16th um, uh, refugees uh, to further their studies. Uh, so he was part of a program and uh, taken to Nigeria with a whole lot of other, you know, June 16th students uh, to, to continue school. There came a scholarship which was organized by THC from the Nigerian government. We don't know how it came, Murray. Uh, uh, we got on, on the plane. Lumumbu signed one plane. Bye-bye, Botswana, we are going to Nigeria to, to, to go and study. When we arrived in Nigeria, we, were under, we, were, we met a lady called Evelyn. I forgot her name. Evelyn, she was a, a tutor of us, and then she put us in several hotels, shabby hotels. It was terrible when we arrived there. The IUEF was effectively set up to give grants to exiled students. It was headquartered in Geneva, and its board was made up of various Nordic NGOs. But there were rumours that it was funded by the CIA, and the IUF was also infiltrated by infamous apartheid turncoat Craig Williamson, a captain in the South African police. Williamson was the deputy director of the fund, and his name came up repeatedly whenever we spoke to any of the students who benefited from the scholarships. In 1980, Williamson was exposed as a spy. The IUF was shut down and all of its documentation destroyed. Those who travel to Nigeria don't speak particularly fondly about their time there. Mickey says it was pretty much awful, from the food to the accommodation and the atmosphere. But the, the following day when there was sun, wow, I'm telling you, I'm sorry to say to the people of Nigeria, but the place was terrible. It, it could affect you psychologically too, where you come from. And now where you are now. The group of students spent a month in various dodgy hotels and residences in Lagos before they were sent off to schools and colleges across Nigeria. Mbuyisa was sent to the Federal Government College in Wari. It's a city in Delta State in southern Nigeria, 400 kilometres from Lagos. Dr. Evelyn Uhobo was the student counsellor in the IUEF office in Lagos in charge of the students. And by all accounts... Mbuyisa was miserable. His health deteriorated. He barely ate. His sister Nsiki says he did relay his concerns in his letters home. Uh, he told us that he was not well because the, the environment was not clear, the water was not good. He suffered from malaria a lot of times. His dad suffered because he was in and out of the hospital. But he also had other positive things to say. He got a friend, a Nigerian guy, even sent a photo with that guy. The photo that the journalist took from my grandmother never brought back. That's why I don't have a picture of him now. And told us about his progress at school. You know. But most of, most of the letters now really was just saying, guys, it's tough for me. Health was not okay. The food here is making me sick. He was, uh, he was very unhappy in Nigeria. Uh, I think there were cultural issues, there were issues around food. You know, which he wasn't familiar with. Um, he he wanted to get back to Botswana if he could, um, and he seemed to have been increasingly uh, emotionally and, and mentally affected. 
uh, just by the entire experience. 1978, his last letter. Mm. I don't remember all the details, but in it he was asking about the kids at next door. There were twins next door up at Pumlong, Twiggy and somebody else. <laughs> he asked how the twins were, asked all the kids around there who, who, how they were, and he had done an extension. Uh, told my mother that uh, he's done with Nigeria, he's not taken seriously and is very ill. And he's thinking of leaving Nigeria. He's gonna walk to Jamaica. Oh. He's gonna walk from Nigeria to Jamaica. He wants to walk to Jamaica. Yeah, then my mother said, No, my child is also mentally ill. How does one walk from Nigeria to Jamaica? Because there's, there's an ocean or something. Yeah. You we could make out from that letter that somehow is a bit disturbed now. So do you think that he was, he was mentally affected by what had happened? Yes. No, he was jolly. Uh, he was jolly, and especially if he knew you from that you are from Soweto and like me, and he knew me, and someone, if he believes like he could, he could go to TAT and talk with him and so on. And, uh, but he, but he, he really, really, to be honest, he needed a, a, a treatment. Uh, in letters I found in Nigeria between, um, Mbuisa and the school where he was at. He wrote a lot to the school principal, pressing a case, you know, to, to be allowed to, to leave. Um, uh, he had issues with the uniform in the school and so on. So there was a lot of communication between him and the school principal. And then between the school and the, the, the scholarship sponsoring organization, one of the representatives. And that communication between between the you know the the scholarship organisation, the International University Exchange Fund, and the school principal, they talk quite openly about their concern that uh, Umbuisa is, is mentally affected, and they were getting concerned increasingly about his mental state. During his search for Umbuisa, Faisal went to Nigeria, and he returned with this pile of documents, correspondence between Umbuisa the college, Dr. Hobo, the IUEF, and his family. The letters are startling, and they tell a story of a desperately unhappy and sick man who wanted to leave the college in Nigeria as soon as he could. Zianda Ngobo, who researched this project with me, has picked out a selection of these letters that really paint a picture of what was going on at that time for Mbuyisa. So, Zianda, the first letter you have is dated 1977, and it's actually written in Mbuyisa's cursive scribble. What does he say in it? Yes, Mandy, um, the letter that I'm actually looking at um, was on dated the 16th of September, and he's basically talking about how he wanted to change subjects. So the previous term he'd taken physics, chemistry, um, biology, mathematics, and he was saying that um, his name wasn't appearing on the notice board and then he'd fallen ill and that he'd like to change his subject and that um, his plea was to know what he could do about this. And that was pretty much it. So I think this was just before 
he started making more pleas to leave the, the college. And then things got progressively worse. He, he really wanted to leave after that. Yeah. So in a letter dated on the 20th of September, which is a couple of days after the subject change letter, um, the principal of the federal college in Wari actually wrote to the medical officer of the hospital there and saying that um, Mwisa was very unhappy. And it says, yeah, he alleges that he suffers from malaria and that his father died prematurely from malaria because there was something wrong with his blood. And then he did go for, for blood tests at the hospital in, in Worry. 100%. So in September of that same year, um, the medical uh, report came back to the, the principal, uh, which is Mr. P.H. Davies, and it said that on doing his blood and urine examination and after the medical examination, I am convinced that he is not suffering from any disease hazardous to his health. This has been explained to him by me, who is now convinced. And then... Um, Again, a month later, on the 2nd of October, he says, um, you know, application for termination. And, and this is where you start to see the progression of him really wanting to leave um, the college. And he says, I wish to bring to your notice that I'm failing to continue with my studies. My mind cannot concentrate on any work anymore. I have found it advisable for me to avoid wastages, which may be have been brought about my idle stay here and trying to give me a proper tuition. I'm asking for termination. Thank you. Your sincerely Mbuyisa Makobo. We tracked down a Nigerian schoolmate who actually shared a dormitory with Mbuyisa. Ben Oligbo now lives in London, but he vividly remembers his time at Wari with Mbuyisa. Um, Mbuyisa came to my school in Nigeria Federal Government College Wari and we actually shared the same dormitory so we we got to know each other and we became friends um, he, he was a fun guy um, but he never seemed to talk much about um, his life in South Africa um, and he <clears throat> sort of warmed to a few people but um, I sort of got the impression that um, he had had a difficult um, past life in South Africa um, and until I actually got to see his photograph on a copy of Time magazine, I didn't realize um, about, about his past. Um, once we left school, um, I didn't sort of get to hear much about him and um, just like everyone else, a bit of a mystery what happened to him. Do you have any idea what may have happened to him? Not at all. Um, none of my schoolmates um, seem to know what had happened to him at all because um, I've had discussions with a few of them and it's still a bit of a mystery. So, unfortunately, no. The last letter Mbuisa sent home was dated June 1978. During the long summer school holidays in Nigeria around that time, all the South African students from the different colleges dotted around the country would gather in Lagos. So in June 1978, Mbuisa left his college. He went to Lagos and he stayed there. 
So the principal wrote about Mbuisa's frustration and how much he really wanted to uh, leave. And in this letter dated on the 17th of October in 1979, um, it says that in June of 1978, Mbuisa called at my office and told me he would soon be leaving school because he had received an offer of help. I believe he said the help was from the United Kingdom and he gave me the impression that he would go to that country. On Wednesday, the 28th of June, our students were taking the end-of-year promotions examinations and I had expected our South African students would take the examinations as well. However, on that morning, Buisa, accompanied by another South African named Paradise Mashinini, walked out of the college without obtaining permission or saying goodbye. I have never seen nor heard anything from them since that day. Naturally, I made a report immediately to Ms. E. O. Urobo, the student counsellor of the International University Exchange Fund, which was responsible for the South African students. Yours sincerely, P.H. Davis, principal of the Federal Government College, Wari. At that stage, Mickey and a couple of the other students had been invited to stay at the Federal Guest House in Lagos. But Mbuisa had other plans. When we were staying there, Mbuisa got a friend, a Nigerian friend, and he had to leave the hotel and go and stay with that Nigerian guy. And then, at that, at that time, we couldn't now control Mbuisa. Even Evelyn herself, she, she couldn't control Mbuisa. Now, the, the, the guy manipulated him, and to find that that guy was smoking dacha. He smoked a lot of pot and would regularly frequent a commune owned by musician Fela Kuti. Kuti had formed what he called the Kalakuta Republic. It was a shrine, a recording studio, and a home for many of the people that were connected to the band. And he declared it independent from the Nigerian state. He was very unpopular with the government at the time, and the place was regularly raided. The men would visit the docks and a nearby cemetery to buy marijuana. Mbuyisa's allegiance to Rastafarianism grew. Without schooling, without doing anything, idling the whole time. But they were trying to look for a placement mm. around Nigeria. Now, idleness cost anything, and we got some allowances to survive. But they were paying for food and everything. The food was terrible to cough now. We couldn't... I mean, they have their, their traditional food. of food. Then Moisa got out of con, 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 control and we, we all started to smoke dacha, but we were idling, and he became worse. Mbuyisa became more and more out of touch with reality until he hit rock bottom. One morning I was joking with T.A.T. Mashinini. Well, when we were joking, we saw we, we, we were at the port because we were looking at the beach, I mean, the beach sand. We were not staying far from the beach. It was just across the road. And the port was not far too. We found him sleeping there. We said, what's going on? He said, no, I want to, go, I want to leave. I don't want to live here. I'm not safe living here. He was telling us those, those stories. Mickey remembers what a state Mbuyisa was in at the time, and again, they tried to get him help. We took him, he was like, like a hobo at that time. We took him back to the, to, to the, the guest house, talked with him. Uh, he was a bit taller than, than, than me and the body. We gave him 
see uh, his clothes so as he could change and he was and then he ate with us and, and overnight for two, for two days. That was January 1979. Mbuyisa was just 20 years old. He was far from home in a foreign country, traumatised from carrying a dying schoolboy during the 1976 uprising. He had suffered several bouts of malaria and cholera. The food was terrible. He was desperate to leave. The third day when we went to go and jog, I don't know how did he go through the gate at the guest house. When he came back, he wasn't there. We went to Bangkola's hotel and checked with other guys. No, that guy, he was here. No, you know, he just passed. He was here and so, so. Everybody started, then we, we, we reported the, the matter to, uh, to Evelyn. Mbuyisa had been sleeping on the roof of the building when his friends left. When they returned, he was gone. Mickey and fellow South African student Jabalani and Lela were the last people on record to see him. They chased up rumours and followed traces of their friend but they just never managed to find him. We went to again to the port. Somebody said, oh, no, oh, the South African man, yeah, we know him, you guys, yeah, he stays at what? And, but we couldn't find him, or he's hiding, or something like that. Mickey and Jabulani filed a missing persons report with the police in Lagos. In a letter written by the Commissioner of Police on the 12th of January, 1981, he states that, Investigators visited various prisons to check whether he was serving a jail sentence. They visited the Felakuti Shrine. No one could give any useful information. They wrote to pathologists at hospitals to check if he appeared on their records. No luck. Mbuyisa's mother even wrote to the Red Cross in Geneva. The Central Tracing Agency tried to find him. They were unsuccessful. There was no trace of him. It was as if he had simply evaporated. Mbuyisa Nikita Makubu, the student in the dungarees carrying Hector Peterson, was never seen again. For years, speculation swirled and theories piled up about what may have happened to him. Yeah, he was always saying to us he wants to, to go to Jamaica. If you remember well, during those days, Bob Marley and Peter Tosh, Benning Spears, they were in fashion and they were singing the revolutionary songs. We, we, we loved the reggae at that time. We could, we could see freedom coming home, but it was too early, but we could see coming. Maybe if we can ask the Jamaican people, don't you have a lost son? Some people said uh, he drowned. They found his body at shore, but nobody knows where he was buried by who. The other one is that he left at night. When people woke up, he wasn't there and he never came back. The third story is that there was somebody, a big person or the president or what in Nigeria, who had died. So they said there's a ritual that is done that they take people and, and, and kill them and put them in a grave so that this king can be put on top of those people. So some people said that maybe there was a case. Oh, there's so much speculation. Um, 
and it's in the documentary as well. I mean, you know, the accounts of him maybe um, having been beaten up in a market because he, um, you know, he pilfered some fruit off a stall uh, and he was killed. Um, and as his mother says in the documentary as well, that none of these accounts were actually uh, verified by anyone. There were, there were some people who asked for a jobs from the big, these big ships. They will take the temporal jobs into the ship, go wherever the ship is going and come back with it. We don't know if was he part of those people. Yeah, and, and you know, there's just various accounts of people having seen him in London and like just all over the world. So when you get all those stories from different people, you never know what the truth is. My deepest, deepest feeling is that he's no longer alive. Uh, because my mother used to say it's either he's crazy in a mental hospital or he's not alive. I can bet that if somebody can, can say Mwisa is alive, there are some people who are prepared to go and get that, that guy. If we can know anybody or anybody suspect that this is Mwisa or maybe where he have died or something like that, let's get his, his, uh, his bones back. No, really. He, he, he was a brother. He was very young, very, very young. How did you feel that you never heard from him again? Oh boy. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how to explain this, really. We just kept on praying because when we come from a praying family, we just kept on praying and praying that maybe one day he will know where he is or as much as we don't know where he is, God is keeping him safe somewhere. Let's just pray one night. He, he is still alive and he can come and tell, tell, tell us a story what made him to disappear for, for so long. Almost 40 years and the search is still on. Hello, missing persons. Madeleine Fullard and the missing persons task team has a file open on Mbuyisa. The task team is this tiny group of investigators, bone collectors and diggers who painstakingly try and find all of those people who are unaccounted for, mostly from the apartheid era. They have some sensational success stories and have been responsible for returning remains and bringing closure through spiritual repatriations. They've been trying to figure out what happened to Mbisa. Uh, the Missing Persons Task Team, we've mainly focused on trying to establish the facts of his disappearance, just simply in terms of place, date, and circumstances. And in doing that, we trace those who were with him in Nigeria, particularly those who were with him on the day of his disappearance, um, and the, getting the, the details of his disappearance. We've also traced uh, the Nigerian official who was in charge of the South African refugee students, um, and we've located documentation such as his school records, and uh, try to search for his uh, possible records with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, the UNHCR. But in this case, Madeleine and her team haven't managed to make any headway. Well, so far we've established the time frame and the location of his disappearance, which was, you know, a little unclear before. Um, but we, his subsequent fate is not known at this stage. So what could have happened to Mbuyisa Makubo? He frequently spoke about wanting to follow his Rastafarian beliefs and go to Jamaica. Maybe he did wangle his way onto a cruise ship. 
Or perhaps he was so detached from reality that he did try to walk across the ocean and drown. Mbuyisa had no passport. His UN travel document was being held by the Nigerian government. The students only received pocket money every three months, so he didn't have the cash to leave Nigeria. Dr. Khobo says she personally gave financial assistance to CSC Mashinini to leave for Liberia, but she never had a similar request from Mbuyisa. He also never told any of his friends about any firm plans, and he never actually said goodbye. Blanket silence after June 1978 when he left the college in Wari. The mortuary and cemetery records were never really properly scrutinized, but anyone you speak to about the state of that admin in Nigeria says it's chaos, like looking for a needle in a haystack. Ambassador George Nene was the ANC's chief rep in Nigeria in 1979. He was tasked with looking into Mbuyisa's disappearance. We did speak to him, and he told us that he never managed to find anything. Other dead ends that were chased up by investigators, friends, family, all of them ended in heartache. For nearly four decades, Mbuyisa's family were left to wonder about his fate. His mother, Elizabeth, went to her grave without any answers. But then, in 2013, new hope. There was a phone call from Canada and the discovery of a man who might just match Mbuyisa's description. The development had the potential to unravel one of the country's most perplexing mysteries but it would play out like a soap opera filled with family scandals, political shenanigans and deceit. In our next episode, we delve into this next step in a long and painful journey. You've been listening to Through the Cracks, the untold story of Mbuisa Makubu. I'm Mandy Wiener, and this is an Eyewitness News production. Research by Ziander Ngobo and Krista Abus. Sound production by Peter Turon. To see supporting documents, maps, timelines, archive footage, and video interviews, visit www.ewn.co.za.